So in Colossians chapter 3, Paul has been writing to the Colossian church, and he has been, uh, he started off in the beginning of chapter 3 with this exhortation reminding them about who they are. And we've said that who you are, uh, who, who, uh, what, your, what your status is, it, it changes the way that you act, the way that you behave. You know, if you uh, are someone who gets promoted at work, all of a sudden you have to act a different way. It comes with a set of behavioral changes. You could uh, be at a very low ranking, but once you are promoted to this higher ranking, then you can't. You are expected to have a different set of behavior, a different set of, of responsibilities. And and, and uh, what we've said here uh, that Paul's trying to communicate here to the Colossians is that those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, are expected to have a set of behaviors that are consistent with what it looks like to be a Christian. And so he gives us two lists in chapter 3 uh, about uh, a set of vices, things that we should not do, things we should put off. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He gives this list. Put away anger, math, rallies, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. He gives us this, this big list in, in verses 5 uh, through 10. <coughs> and then he gives us the second list, uh, kind of starting in verse 10 there, going uh, through uh, verse 16 about a list of virtues, things that we ought to do. This type of behavior that is expected of one whose status is holy, whose status is positionally holy, not that we are perfect, not that we are, are saints in the sense that we are, are acting correctly all the time and rightly, but rather how God sees us through Christ. And so, uh, Paul gives us this list here in verse 12. He starts and says, put on then... And the word that he uses there is this kind of the idea of putting on clothes, putting on these layers of clothes, and we likened it to, uh, you know, putting on, putting on these things here of whole, uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. It's kind of like you're layering up to go out in, in the snow. And, and if you've ever seen, uh, the, the, sto- the movie A Christmas Story, uh, there where you'll shoot your eye out, you know, uh, there's that moment there where uh, Ralphie's younger brother, he has to go out into the snow, and then he puts on this, this kind of snowsuit that puts him in a position where he's just stuck. His arms are outstretched, and he can't move, and he just looks like the Michelin man. And he's, he, you know, he, if he falls, on, he falls on his face in the snow, and he just can't get up. And, and Paul says that that, that outer garment, that thing that, that locks it all together firmly, is love. He, he says that, that you should... Above all these things, verse 14, put on love, which, is the, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, so we are to, to have this love about us. Uh, Christians are to have this love and have Christ's peace rule in their hearts. Now, he goes on in, in verse 18 to transition us into rules for households for the family, for the Christian household. Now, previously in chapter 3, he was speaking to us about the spiritual family, how we ought to treat uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who belong to the family of God. And now he gives us uh, a, a set of instructions for how we should interact as a, a family unit, a physical family. 
because our relationships don't change once we are in Christ. If you come to faith in Christ and you trust Jesus for your salvation, you trust that he is the one who can rescue you because you cannot rescue yourself, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, you know, you don't have kids anymore or you don't have a spouse anymore. That's gone. That's put away. You still have those things, but your status should change how you act with each other. And so Paul gives some instructions even to uh, these very practical uh, roles. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. So we said last week as we looked at these two roles, wives submitting to their husbands is, is uh, an act of humility where they are voluntarily placing themselves under the authority of another. Not that they have to, but that they are willing to. That they're per- perfectly capable of functioning on their own, perfectly capable of, of making solid, sound decisions, perfectly capable of doing a host of things, but rather this is a voluntary, voluntary act. And then Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And we said that, that for Husbands, this was not something that was found in uh, the common codes that existed in ancient Greece or, or in Rome. These things weren't commanded of uh, patriarchal leaders in a family. It was wives submit to your husbands and do what they want you to do, but there was never a command for the husbands to be kind. And so Paul, he kind of is subverting the culture and saying, it's not just that this husband is going to be domineering, but rather his job is to love his wife, to, make, to, to put her in a position of the maximum flourishing, to put her in a position of maximum security. And we're told in Ephesians that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so the Christ, Christ loves his church by laying down his life for her, by loving sacrificially, And so here, husbands are to do that same thing. And then he gives us a set of instructions for children's obedience. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything. And then he says to the fathers, a, a response there, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And now we come to the text this morning in verse 22. Paul says, slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. So why does Paul give instructions to like slaves? It kind of seems out of the blue here that he goes, he goes here with his, with his next line of thought. Now, it appears perhaps a little bit odd to us, but it didn't appear this way to the original readers. It didn't appear this way because uh, slaves, uh, these bond servants, were, conti- were considered members of of the Greco-Roman household. This was a very common uh, situation in the first century. It would have looked different to us than it would to first century readers. Now, slavery was an integral part of the economic uh, background of the uh, world in the first century. It was the backbone on which the economy was built. It uh, it, it is said that up to 50% of the Roman world could have been slaves. And there were basically those two classes. There was the, the slave and the free man. And, and one scholar uh, in our city that we're talking about this morning, Colossae, one scholar thought that one-third of the people in Colossae would have been slaves. And so it's a huge bulk of, of people that he's speaking to, that he's writing to. 
And, and as I said, in the Roman Empire, you would have had two classes. There wasn't like a third class. You were either slave or free. Now, freedom in this first century slavery wasn't the obvious same sort of freedom that we would enjoy today. It's, it's not just uh, automatic good in that sense. We'll explain. Because we think of slavery in, in our terms today of, of what it has existed in our nation's history, which is deplorable and awful. It is uh, the forced sub- subjugation of a specific, a certain race, a certain ethnicity of people. And in this culture, in the first century, that wasn't always the, it, it wasn't the case at all. It, it was not a specific, it wasn't, uh, slavery was not based on a specific race or spe- specific uh, ethnicity or origin, but people could become slaves uh, by two means. It was either by force, and that would happen through uh, war. If you were a prisoner of war and your nation was captured, then you became slaves to the other nation who conquered you. Uh, that's, you know, kind of the same thing that we see in a sense with like work camps. There's, uh, you know, places like North Korea. If you get captured there, you go to a work camp and you're, you're basically, uh, in a sense, a slave uh, in that situation. But many people would voluntarily place themselves into slavery to pay debts, to climb the social ladder, to obtain positions of authority. All of these things were open to slaves. It was, they lived in a a credit culture. And in a sense, we kind of experienced this to a degree because like we get enslaved to debt and then, you know, we're enslaved to our credit cards, basically. They, they, we, they would be enslaved to, uh, to their debtors. And so they would go and pay it off by saying, I'm going to work for you only specifically until I've satisfied this debt. You know, in our day and age, we work for ourselves and we try to pay off our credit cards or pay off our, our debts. And it's up to you if you're wise or not. But this was a way that the, the, uh, the masters could be sure that they were going to receive their payment. So many people would sell themselves into slavery. And slavery was not the... Um, it wasn't a life sentence that we would see early in our nation's history. Like, you were, once you were a slave, like, that was it forever. You could never get out of it. Most slaves could expect, and it was almost a strategic thing, where they would put themselves into someone's debt so that way they could be out by age 30, and then they could go, be free to go and, and live how they wanted to live and have some money saved and have power and authority. Uh, it was a way to come up in, and climb the, the corporate ladder in that day, by working for someone who had a lot of clout, and so you would put yourselves intentionally under uh, someone else's authority for that purpose. And then when you got out, then people would know you. They would know your track record, your faithfulness. You'd have a bit of a resume. And then you would get out, and you would have a little bit of money saved, perhaps. And then you could uh, go and start your life. Now, even while you were a slave, uh, scholars say that some slaves could even own property and they could have their own slaves while they were slaves and they could have land. And so they would have people who were uh, uh, indebted to them and they would be working towards paying them off and it would be kind of this system where people were paying each other off over time. Now, As I said, this wasn't based upon 
a specific race, a specific ethnicity, but slaves came from all sorts of classes. They came from all sorts of backgrounds. They came from all sorts of occupations. It it wasn't a specific uh, way to keep one sort of class down or separated, although there was little sense of unity amongst the slaves because they didn't have a common bond, uh, aside from the fact that they were all indebted. There wasn't like you know, there wasn't a notice that like, hey, we're all one type of people or we're all, you know, they're trying to keep us to where we can't ever get out of this. Uh, but rather, they had a, a wide variety of backgrounds and occupations, ways that they could invest in life. Now, they served in all sorts of capacities and slaves would, would exist in terrible jobs, like working in mines, um, and their life would be very short because it was very dangerous. But then they would also be trusted and would be people who would run businesses and raise children. Uh, these, there, there would be positions available to slaves within the first century. And anyone could become a slave, and anyone could become free. So you had the ability to buy yourself out, to put yourself in a position where uh, you could become a free person, but freedom wasn't always the best move. And so a lot of slaves chose to stay slaves, and this is where we kind of get the idea of a bond slave. Once you've fulfilled your obligation, you decide that, you know, the person that I'm serving under is super good to me and my family, and they are awesome. And so instead of going out and being on my own and having no resources available to me, I'm going to continue here as if I'm part of the family, and I'm going to continue serving. If uh, a a Christian uh, master released all of his slaves immediately, the chances that they would be sending those slaves out into poverty was really high because slaves often didn't, you know, you had to work a while before you had anything. Um, And if you were just to be straight released, it was basically a sentence of like, you're going to be like super poor, you're going to be starving. But if they had stayed in that relationship, then they would have uh, resources available to them. Now, the treatment of slaves varied massively just because it wasn't the same as the slavery that we experienced in our nation's history. Uh, It doesn't necessarily make it better. Treatment varied quite widely, and uh, the, the masters could be very cruel, could Uh, you know, it's often said of some slaves that they would expect at the end of the day of their work to have a punishment waiting for them just regardless. Like, didn't do anything just to show who's boss. You know, it was basically kind of something that you would experience at the end of your day. But there were also a lot of incentives for owners because this was an economic investment. You know, if, if you had healthy, happy workers, then they were going to turn out good work for you. And in turn, your, uh, you know, if the, whatever work they're working on is going to produce a greater return for you. So there was greater incentive for them to be treated well. Now, even if they were made free, there was still an obligation according to 
law to work for your previous masters for a certain period of time. So if you were made free, you still weren't like completely free-free for a while. You still had this obligation. You still had to work for uh, your previous master for a certain number of days per year, for a certain number of years. And so because this was such a widespread uh, culture within the first century, Paul is writing to include slaves here. The longest set of instructions in the household code is actually two slaves. And so he doesn't really comment uh, so much on like what he thinks about it, but he encourages these slaves and he brings uh, a sense of responsibility to these masters. Now, it's interesting here uh, that, that Paul does this um, because it's something that we immediately kind of throw out the window because in our, it's so closely tied to our mindset of our nation's history of slaves and slavery. But Paul's expectation is that slaves would serve well and masters would treat them well. The person uh, uh, and slaves were to be treated in a way that they were promoted, invested in. There's not really like a better way to say this, and it's not even the same. Uh, So just go with me on this. But in a sense, slaves were receiving, if they had an honorable master, they were receiving a lot of training. They were receiving a lot of uh, life skills. They were receiving a lot of networking. Um, and in that sense, there was a lot of benefit. So they could be uh, work in any position in society, pretty much, uh, and they could even be placed above some free men uh, in the social ladder because of their responsibilities and who they worked for. The person who wrote the majority of the New Testament, uh, the, uh, the doctor, Luke, he was a slave. He wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. He wrote more verses of the New Testament than anybody. He was a slave. And he served a man named Theophilus. That's how he starts uh, both books. He's sending this report. And, you know, Luke is like this super detailed uh, physician. It's not like he was kind of low on the totem pole. He's very detailed speaking about the medical history that he finds uh, in the book of Luke, speaking about the different wounds and different miracles that Jesus does and, and how he describes them. He describes them as a physician would. And so here we see that there could be great positions of authority. So we come to our text this morning looking at Colossians 3, verse 22, talking about slavery. So how do we deal with it today? Now, there's a tendency, uh, and we want to avoid this tendency to just say that masters are your bosses and slaves are your workers. Because sometimes when we're working for people, it seems like we're slaves, the type of work that we're doing. It's like, this is terrible. This, we should not be doing this right now. This is the worst type of work. I think that whenever I have to work outside when it's really hot, like this is awful. But that's not how we want to approach this. It's not a direct parallel because being employed by someone is not the same as being a slave, not even close. However, the principles are still good. What he tells them to do are still things that we can apply. 
And so the teaching that we find in verses 22 verse, uh, through chapter 4, verse 1, it applies equally to work today. And it shows that when we yield to these principles, when our standards are pleasing the Lord, then we will be faithful in our work. So let's get into it. Verse 22, <coughs> Paul writes, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So Paul doesn't just ignore slavery here. It's actually noteworthy that he addresses it. He undermines those who would be a part of the lower part of culture, but yet still mentions them. He's pushing the gospel into the forefront, and eventually the slave system will collapse under the injection of the gospel into it. Although it doesn't, Paul doesn't come out and just say, hey, this is a really bad idea. Everyone should just release their slaves because, you know, obviously there's, there's you know, some bad connotations here, and the gospel says that all of our debts have been forgiven because of Christ, and so no one should have any, he doesn't say that. He gives us specific instructions. Part of the reason is because uh, Paul's voice in that, um, the things that he was writing were being read by the larger uh, authorities of Rome. And so he writes uh, kind of with a respectful attitude, knowing that if he injects the gospel into it, it will collapse on itself. Uh, Part of it is the fact that uh, the Christian church was like, such a small, small percentage, his call to have something like this enacted would have not been, it would have not been effective at all. But careful, loving, gospel-oriented treatment over time would show that this system would eventually collapse. As the church grew, as more people yielded to the gospel and saw that we all stand before the cross on equal footing, it went away. So, part of the reason he writes here to slaves and masters is as they're reading this in the, in the Colossian church, they would hear this together. Both slaves and masters were a part of the Christian church in Colossae. So, he is careful to, to make a division. There's earthly masters and a heavenly master. Paul is reminding both the slaves and the masters that you're ultimately not the one in charge. There's an ultimate master who we serve. We serve the Lord, and we want to please and serve him. And so he brings that remembrance to us by describing these earthly masters as just uh, having a much lower level. He contextualizes them and really strips away a lot of their power by reminding them that there's a greater master. And so his instructions are, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And he describes the type of obedience that they are to have in two ways. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, So this is a type of attitude that a a servant or a slave or a worker, as you and I would would be, uh, would have where we would only work hard when our bosses are around, when they're looking at us, when they're in the same room. You know, uh, it's the type of attitude uh, that Paul says that we shouldn't have. You know, we shouldn't be like, okay, well, on Thursday, we know that all the management is going to be out of the office. So like, you know, we can have longer conversations, we can talk and hang out then and, uh, you know, relax and chill and slack off. But rather, we are to be 
not as people pleasers, not only having obedience that's like superficial or, or would be hypocritical when people, when the, when the management is around, when bosses are around, that we're like, oh, look at how hard we're working. We're proving that we're working so hard so that way you see and that way when you're gone, you think that we're doing the same thing. But rather, we are to continually work hard with sincerity. That's what he says. So the first type of obedience, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. The second was sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart. The word that he uses there is singleness. Singleness for sincerity. It's this idea of having uh, the the standard uh, lexical definition, therefore, that is to a focused and unvarying concentration of the will that produces consistent conduct. What, what Paul's saying is you have to have this singleness of heart if you're going to be a, a, a solid Christian worker. You know you're, you're, you're single-hearted in that you fear the Lord and therefore your work product will be consistent. Your conduct will be consistent. Whether the eye of, of your supervisor, your master is on you or not, you're going to produce the same level of work regardless. You're going to be faithful. Then he goes on in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I love what Paul does here. He kind of, he, he gets rid of all the loopholes by starting off verse 23 by saying, whatever you do. Because we all want to know, well, what do I have to work hard at? And what do I not have to work hard at? What do I have to uh, be consistent in? And what do I not have to be consistent in? We want to separate the, the, the uh, sacred and the secular. That's how our natural inclination is to think. Like, okay, I'm digging ditches and this isn't for the Lord, so like I can slack off and not work hard. But, if I'm doing something, you know, I'm going to go pass out flyers for church or we're going to stamp tithe envelopes or we're going to, you know, we're going to do something that like has a spiritual connection to it, then we're going to work as hard as we can because it's for the Lord. And, and we tend to create these connections where, or, or we tend to create compartments for these things uh, when it's a, a sacred act, then we want to work hard. But when it's a secular act, well, we could put less effort into that. But Paul doesn't leave that open to us. We, we are to work hard in whatever we do. That means whether the task is seemingly unimportant, if it's trivial in nature, the strength of your work is to be the same. Whether it seems like this isn't going to matter at all, this isn't going to affect anybody at all, your work is unto the Lord and not unto men. The way that we are to approach it is to work heartily, he tells us. Work heartily. Our call is not to mediocrity because we just kind of tend to do like the, the least amount of work possible. It's like, let me just get over the line of what's required. Uh, you know, there's... You know, we're asking for a to-do list 
in the office or we're, we're figuring out what's required of us and we're just going to do just enough and stop there. But Paul says that we ought to work heartily for the Lord and not for men. As Christians, we shouldn't be mediocre workers. We should be excellent workers. We should blow everybody out of the water. Not because we're better, but because God's work is excellent and we're to image God. Our, God's work is never mediocre. At creation, he didn't create and be like, yeah, I guess that's all right. It didn't happen. He didn't be like, check this mountain range out. And he's like, yeah, I guess it could take a little bit of improvement. It just never happened. When we look at, at Psalms, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They don't say like, it, they show that he's kind of good, but there's room for improvement. God's work, his creation, what he has done is excellent. And so those who are Christians shouldn't be lazy. They should be excellent in their work. No matter how trivial, no matter how unimportant your work seems, you got to be faithful. You got to be a hard worker at all times. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When we're working heartily for the Lord, when we are, are uh, one, one commentator translates heartily as, as doing something from the soul, it's something done from the heart of a person or, or with, with the individual's life force behind it. You're putting every bit of energy. When you are doing that unto the Lord, you're going to be faithful because you know that you're pleasing him. You're doing something not to cut uh, cut corners or make shortcuts, but you're doing it because you know that the Lord is watching and you want to please him. Other people might not care, but when we do things well, it brings glory to God because it shows that we have his character in us. And so we must have that realization all the time that we're working for the Lord and not just for humans. It's easy to slack off when you think you're just working for humans because it's like, I'm going to turn out my work for you on the basis of like how nice you were to me this week or how understanding you were about my time off request. So I'm going to kind of vary my efforts based upon that. But that's not how we're to respond. We have to have the mindset that we are serving the Lord at all times. And when we work with heartily into the Lord, when we work with diligence towards him, we turn our work into an act of worship. Even if it's something that just seems super lame, super mundane, super trivial, if it's something that just is boring, if you do it well unto the Lord, it's an act of worship. We're serving and worshiping God well in that act. Now, Paul says, that we should work heartily into the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. <clears throat> this inheritance that he's talking about is spoken of in the New Testament as the kingdom of God, salvation. Uh, uh, Peter talks about it in his epistle as an inheritance kept in heaven for you and given to God's people on the last day. It's this entrance into the kingdom of heaven, this relationship with the Lord. And Paul connects that imaging of his character with receiving an inheritance. 
you're a part of the family of God, and if you act like it, if you're demonstrating that you are a part of it, then you will receive that inheritance. What he's calling us towards is not to act this way so that way we can show God that we are good enough to receive this, but rather these works, these imaging of God's character reflects that we have already been received a part of the family. These things don't justify us, but that they testify their evidence that we are a part of God's family. So what, what Paul's reminding these slaves of, and many who don't, probably don't have an inheritance at this point in their lives, they don't have something that they're going to, when they become a free man, they're going to have like this you know, nest egg waiting for them. He's giving them something to, to grasp, something to look forward to. When you... Uh, if you work hard, you're going to have this inheritance. And it's an inheritance better than any earthly inheritance that you can receive because moth and rust cannot destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. But it is yours forever in Christ. So he gives this, this hope. Now in verse 25, he kind of gives us a, a verse that's strategically positioned. Verse 25 he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He puts that at the end of the section about slaves, but then at the beginning of the section about masters. It's like this swing verse that applies to both of them. It's so strategic in how he places it. Just when, you know, I'm sure that they're there and this letter's being read and they're in the church, and then that's said right at the end of the section about the slaves and the masters are like, yeah, you better listen. And then the next word is to them. And it's like, oh, that also kind of applies to us too. You know, and we're all looking for a loophole all the time. And Paul doesn't leave it there. He strategically places this verse and he thinks of both in this, uh, in this section. Because we treat each other with partiality, although we're not supposed to, although scripture tells us that we shouldn't show favoritism and be, hey, like, you know, you're a master, you have authority and clout and ability, and so I'm going to uh, side with you, I'm going to be more generous, or I'm going to be more kind towards you, or, uh, you know, what, what Paul's saying is God doesn't, God isn't a respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't care if you're a slave in your status or a master in your status. Just a couple of verses earlier, he has told us uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The playing field is level for everybody. God doesn't, God doesn't look at it through those lenses. Whether you're a Greek or a Jew, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, there's one in Christ. All stand as sinners before the cross and all can be redeemed through Christ's blood. So he reminds both slaves and masters, the wrongdoer, if you continue in this habitual lifestyle of wanting to do what you want to do, if you act as your ultimate master rather than uh, submitting yourself to God as the ultimate master, then you're going to face that wrongdoing. God doesn't show favoritism. God's not partial. 
But if you try to put yourself as a greater master than he who is the ultimate master, then you're going to face uh, retribution for your wrongdoing. However, if you place yourself under Christ's leadership, if you submit to Jesus, then Scripture tells us that Jesus has already paid the price. He has already been punished for our sin, for our wrongdoing. And so we have an inheritance. We get what Jesus gets, and he got what we should have deserved. We receive these free gifts, these, uh, just the, the benefits of relationship with God through Christ's work. And so Paul reminds us of how we ought to love and serve one another with kindness, justice, uh, faithfully. Now in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he gives words to the masters. Now, they are short in nature, considerably uh, a smaller section to masters, but in comparison to the world at large, what he's telling them is radical. Look at what he says. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul's words here are incredibly kind. They are incredibly loving when compared with secular parallels. He tells masters, these people are people that you should treat justly. They should have what is due to them. If they worked hard, they should get an honest wage, a good wage. You should treat them fairly. They are not below you. They are not another class. They are not other, but rather recognize who they are. Greek philosophy has like this really terrible lineage of thought on slavery, even in the first century. Aristotle, in his uh, work on politics, he writes regarding slavery, uh, a possession is a tool for living, and one's possessions are a collection of tools. A slave, then, is a particular sort of animate tool, and every servant is a tool prior to other tools. So he doesn't even place slaves in the class of human. You're just a tool, an animate tool. You are other. You don't even get to be a human. You're just something, you're an extension. He goes on to, to, to um, explain that, that a slave is just an extension of, uh, of the master and doesn't get to have any regard and doesn't matter how you treat the tool as long as it, the master's will can be accomplished. Plato has very similar thoughts uh, in how he explains uh, his view on slavery. Uh, but one, uh, one uh, person who was writing uh, about this, he, he works for uh, the ethics department um, at the New York Institute of Technology, and he works in the English department as well, uh, writing a paper on this. He says, The most obvious implication of Aristotle's focus on function in his discussion of slaves is that by equating the human and the tool, the master can feel comfortable about his domination of the other, for a tool is not human, like the master, and therefore not within his circle of empathy. The objectification makes ownership acceptable, 
For example, the concept of slaves as simply a part of a network makes them seem less human than if they were seen as individuals. So in analyzing all of Aristotle's writings on slaves, the idea is that they were, he went about it this way in order to make them less human, to make, put them purposefully in that category of other. But Paul displays a great concern for slaves. He displays a great concern for them as, in recognizing them as image bearers. He doesn't say treat them as other. He says they're not tools, but they're humans, and they're made in the likeness of God in his image, and they're equally valued by God. So they ought to be treated honorably, justly, fairly. They should be treated in how you would treat Christ. They bear his image. So Paul calls on masters to provide slaves with above and beyond what would be required in the secular community, in the secular culture. He says they should have a proper wage, they should be paid well. And his purpose in getting to this is about reflecting God's character. That's what all of the household codes have been about. In wives submitting to their husbands, in husbands loving their wives, in children obeying the parents, in fathers not provoking the children. All of that is not just about having good behavior, about making your household click, making everything work well. It's about demonstrating God's character. And that's what he's calling all households, what he's calling you and I to as Christian workers, to reflect his character in how we work in, our, in the strength and the ethic of our work, that we would work diligently, that we would work hard, and that God would be glorified through that. <clears throat> now, as we said in our text, Paul never commends slavery. This text has been misused like so many different ways. The text in Ephesians have been, has been misused, uh, especially in our nation's history. You know, people will say, well, he never called for their outright freedom. As, as we said, you know, that, that's not what, um, obviously that's not what he was going for, but that's what he was going for. He didn't just say outright, free the slaves, but by calling them into a relationship where they loved and served each other on the basis of the gospel he puts them on equal footing before the cross. The gospel shows that masters and slaves are both brothers and sisters in Christ. What happens at Pentecost when Peter gets up and the church starts? Peter gets up in Acts 2, he preaches the gospel, and thousands of people are saved that first day. It says in Acts 2.42 that they uh, came together, they broke bread, they had fellowship, they prayed together, they had all things in common right? They worship together. And then it says, and everybody gave to each other. Do you think that everybody in that first group of thousands of people was only all masters and they were all equally sharing with each other? No. In the first century, it, it, there's just no way. Out of thousands of people who were saved in that first class, there was already the gospel injecting 
uh, an equality in saying, oh, you have need, the gospel has met my need, so I'm going to meet your need. Even though I am a master and you are a slave in class, I see that you have need, and so I'm going to meet that need. And likewise, slaves would, could serve other masters and masters with that similar mindset. Christ has met my need, and so I'm going to serve you selflessly with that same intention. Paul never commends slavery, but he subverts it through the preaching of the gospel, proclaiming Christ. Through the gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ were both slaves and masters. They sat in church together. As the church gathered, they prayed together and worshiped together. And over time, those classes dissolved and the gospel was more highly exalted and uh, we see what happened as the church exploded in church plans. We see what happens uh, with the exhortation. If you want to have a, a look similarly at this, you can look at the book of Philemon. It's a, a letter from Paul writing uh, you know, about a slave to a master, and it's, it's really insightful in how he instructs this master to treat uh, this slave But ultimately, we want to remember that as Paul told both masters and slaves, that we are ultimately slaves to the greater master. We have an ultimate master in heaven. And we cannot place ourselves up on our own high horse or above you know, these things in our day and age, but we should have that similar humility that slaves would have in serving and doing the will of another, in submitting to the will of the master, our ultimate master, the Lord. Jesus said this, we'll wrap up with this, in Mark 10, verse 42. As the, as, uh, as the disciples were there and they were walking with Jesus, they get into this argument. I don't know how you get into this argument with Jesus around, but somehow they get into this argument where Peter and, and I think it's Peter and James, or I forget exactly who it is now off the top of my head, but they get into this argument where they're like fighting over who's going to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand when he comes into his kingdom. And he's like, they're having this battle. And it's like almost to the point where like they get to a Rochambeau over it. And then Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? And like, whatever you ask, I'm going to grant for you. And so they're like, grant that we would sit your left hand and right hand because they want to have this this position of authority, this position of power. They want to have prominence. They want to be known, right? That's how we all want to be known, and, and that's kind of how we go through life. But look at what Jesus tells, tells them in Mark 10, verse 42. He talks about masters, these Gentile masters. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It's like they're, they're like these domineering, authoritative masters. But then he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Don't look to rule, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus' instruction is, don't seek to be known, but seek to serve. Don't seek to exalt yourself as a master, but model the character of your master who humbled himself and put himself in the place of a servant, who came in the likeness of sinful man, who put off his glory to walk among us. Put yourself in a position where you model that character. Humble yourself. And so then when you act in these ways in your Christian households, submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children obeying your fathers uh, or your parents, fathers not provoking your children, slaves obeying your masters and working unto the Lord and not to men, masters treating your slaves with uh, justly and fairly. All of these things are imaging Christ who ultimately was the greatest slave of all, who though he was though he is the ultimate master, humbled himself to become uh, the, the greatest, most humblest slave of all for our sake. Look at all he accomplished. A lot. Modeling God's love. And so that's what he calls us to in this text. It seems like we're just getting a set of rules for like, here's how to do it. Here's the handbook for life. But there's another layer that goes beyond that. It's image God. Show his character. Don't just obey the rules. Obey the spirit of the rules. Show, uh, show his character off to the watching world. People will be perplexed in the first century to see the way that these, uh, you know, this household code go down. To see husbands loving their wives purposefully as Christ loved the church. To see masters uh, you know, treating their slaves justly and fairly as brothers and sisters in Christ, we just blow people's minds. And we see, you know, as we saw in Acts 2, many came to faith as the result of their good works. As they go out and obey the gospel, many people met Jesus because of it. So we should pray that the Lord does that same work in us as we image him, that more people would meet Jesus as a result. Because we're simply... Our actions should simply reflect who he is. So when they see it, they know where to get more from Christ, who has accomplished all of this on our behalf. So let's pray, and we'll respond in worship together. Lord, we're thankful for um, your goodness to us um, and your, <coughs> your kindness and how you have treated us well. Lord, you have demonstrated your love towards us at the cross. Lord, you have showed us that love um, justly and fairly, and not just justly, not only justly, giving us, uh, you've gone beyond justice. Lord, you've shown us uh, mercy, and you've shown us grace. Lord, you gave us both what we didn't deserve. We didn't deserve to to, to live and not be punished. But Lord, you gave us more than that. You made us members of your family. You've made us sons and daughters. You've put off uh, our old life. You've crucified our, our works of sin with Christ at the cross. And you've made us your own new people again. 
Lord, you've gone beyond this. And so, Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving now. So we pray that you would direct us and call us uh, to that repentance or that you would call us to worship as we respond to your goodness to us. We love you. Amen.